if you repeat results, you are in the business that is diagonally opposite to innovation. You know, I've heard people say it's all about execution. Blackberry was executing really well. Trouble is, the world changed while they were busy executing. The most powerful catalyst for getting people into the right frame of mind to do something different and to innovate is actually the sharing of stories. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this episode, we'll be looking at costivation, innovation that gives your customers exactly what they want and nothing more. We'll look at how companies like Planet Fitness have become wildly successful by challenging long-held assumptions about what their customers actually want and need, the three core traits shared by companies that excel at costivation, and why setting a vision with strategic objectives is such a key component for any innovation effort. Joining us today to talk about all that and more is Stephen Wunker. Stephen is Managing Director and U.S. Market Head of New Markets Advisors. He combines world-class strategy consulting and entrepreneurial skills, and he's the author of Costivation, innovation that gives your customers exactly what they want and nothing more. He's also the author of Capturing New Markets, How Smart Companies Create Opportunities Others Don't, which was named one of the five best business books of 2011. He's also co-author of Jobs to Be Done, a roadmap for customer-centered innovation, which was one of four finalists for best general business book of 2016. Stephen has a long track record of creating successful ventures for his own companies and on behalf of clients. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thanks very much, Will. Absolutely. So let me start off by asking, there are three core traits you found that are shared by companies who excel at costivation. Can you share what those core traits are and why they're so important? Uh, You bet. So first of all, you need to start by breaking free of the constraints of how you've always thought about the business. There needs to be some sort of breakthrough perspective. Very frequently, that is based on a really deep and rigorous understanding of what customers are actually trying to get done, the the jobs to be done that they have, which was the subject of my last book. But it can also be internal customers. It doesn't always have to be on the outside. Frequently, that is turbocharged by looking at examples of how companies in analogous situations, sometimes from very different industries, have tackled things in a way that makes you suspend those core assumptions. So that's number one. Number two, you then need to focus in on particular levers uh, that seem to have a particular promise in your situation. So it might be on distribution. It might be on a, a particular set of customers that you find is very expensive to serve. What you're really looking for are opportunities to continue to delight a customer, sometimes even delight a customer even more than you have previously, but that make radical step changes in your cost. And then finally, you need to look across the business at uh, ways that you can integrate not just some potential redefinition of product, but the customer experience, the the way you go to market, your ecosystem partners, a number of different levers that allow you to have a, a multi-dimensional playing field, not just one play, uh, which is typically what people run cutting out costs, hacking away benefits uh, that leaves customers dissatisfied. Instead, by by thinking multidimensionally, you can actually deliver more to a customer that's meaningful to them, but do it at substantially lower cost. 
And one of the key tenets of costivation is that less is more, or at least it can be. So why should more companies succumb to the allure of keeping it simple, stupid? <laughs> so, you know, this goes back to who is your customer and really understanding that segment you're trying to serve and what they truly value. So let's talk by way of example. Planet Fitness is a $10 a month gym, which is a fifth or a tenth, or in some cases, a 20th of what competitive gyms are charging out there. And yet it leads the industry in customer satisfaction. It's number one. It just hit 10 million members. It's rapidly growing. So how does it do that? How, how is it so inexpensive and yet so good for, for what it does? They have a very clear focus on a target customer, in this case, the casual exerciser. So that person doesn't need a steam room. They don't need a lot of free weights or personal trainers. They need row upon row of cardio machines that are always available and an atmosphere that accepts them even if they don't have the perfect body or uh, ultra endurance. They have a very simple business that caters to that singular, albeit very large, uh, segment of the, the fitness market. Uh, and in so doing, they can engineer it to be a super low-cost proposition to deliver, uh, and that reinforces the customer satisfaction they achieve. And I love the story in the book of Henrik Ottschuler. So what does T-R-I-Z stand for, and how does it apply to developing a unique perspective? Uh, so TRIZ stands for some Russian acronym I could never pronounce. So, <laughs> so don't bait me into it, Will. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Altschuler was an inmate at Stalin's labor camps. He was put there for inventor's sabotage, which I, I hope is not still a crime. Otherwise, we, we've got some, uh, some issues, you and I. <laughs> uh, and he used that time to really think about not just what are some of these individual things that he could come up with. He came up with a lot of wild stuff. but What's the process for how you break your molds and think differently about things? So, you know, how do you create, for instance, a, uh, a proposition that customers hate? Why would they hate it? Who would hate it? You know, what is the, the sum of all the different parts of your proposition? If you took away different elements of that, what would you have? What would really be essential? Who would it be good for? Lots of these very detailed questions. Now, the, the, the Soviets weren't known for their radical simplicity of their thinking or their writing. So uh, what he came up with was, was really complicated. But there were some gems there. And so what we've tried to do is extract from that uh, some, some core questions that can be used over and over again to help people get that, that different perspective. And, and what would a few of those core questions be? Well, it, it goes to what I was just saying, right? Yeah. So why would certain people hate this. Yep. Uh, you know, when you subtract elements from your proposition, what does it leave you with? At what point do you have nothing left that's really viable? So you, you think about things both holistically, but also in their, their pieces uh, in ways that make you maybe see the industry in a very different way than you might have previously. Yeah. Another colorful character that you write about is Hiroki Aoki, a.k.a. Rocky. Rocky. What, yes. Not, not the Rocky that I grew up and, uh, and, and loved. 
Well, I guess in a way I did because I love the Con Key in Raleigh, North Carolina. But what was Rocky's costivation that will be familiar to so many listeners who are fans of the hibachi? That's right. Rocky is is not famous for his Olympic wrestling or his speedboat racing uh, or even the adult magazine that he founded, which is still in circulation. He is the inventor of Benihana and the, the Tapanyaki Grill. And you know, Benihana is this remarkable operations story. People focus on the customer experience. And look, it delivers a great customer experience about, uh, for it. But you know, think about the menu. There's three things. There's chicken, beef, and uh, shrimp. That's it. And when you think about the, the space utilization in a Benihana, where's the kitchen? Well, there basically isn't much of a kitchen. It's all in the front of the house. Uh, and so it's a very efficient use of real estate as well. So it's a very simple model to run. It creates a huge entertainment value for, for the guests so they can price it at a premium. That uh, they're, they're taking a lot of the operational savings for themselves. Uh, and he certainly broke free of a lot of the traditional constraints that people thought about in a restaurant. Like the kitchen always has to be out of view at the back of the house. Yeah. So let me go from some of the colorful characters to some of the, the, the kind of nuts and bolts of costivation. Why do you think that setting a vision with strategic objectives is such a key part of the process? Innovation is not an end. It is a means to an end. Far too few people get that. They just want to go innovate. But if you don't know what you're innovating for, there's all kinds of stuff you could do, which might be off target. So are you uh, aiming to be more cost competitive for a particular customer segment that you think you're losing? Are you trying to blunt the entry of a disruptive entrant? Are you uh, trying to address a, a rising cost problem that you have? Are you trying to position yourself for the next recession, which you know it's going to come one day? There's a lot of different strategic objectives you could have. And the choice of those objectives guides what you're trading off. So who's your target customer that you're going for? And what is acceptable uh, to them and the trade-offs that you're willing to make to, uh, to you know, bring them a lower cost proposition? Uh, and then also what, what you're creating options with any innovation. So options for, for what? Is it for having a, a base model and then you do some premiums off of that? Is it uh, an options to cross-sell things to a new set of customers? Uh, if you don't have a, a view of that compass, then you might end up setting off in the wrong direction. Yeah, and, and digging into the customer a little bit, bit more and in thinking about customer needs, what is the jobs to be done framework and what are the two types of jobs to be done? Jobs to be done is the subject of my last book. Uh, and this stems from my, my mentor, Clay Christensen, who I worked with for, for many years. As Clay writes, people are ultimately not out there to buy a product or a service. Uh, they're trying to get stuff done in their lives. So, you know, I'm buying a coffee at Dunkin' Donuts, not because I'm buying a coffee. I'm buying an energy boost. I'm buying a short indulgence at the start of the day, buying a way to break up my commute. You know, the, the, there's a lot of different things you can accomplish with a purchase. And if you don't understand those root motivations for people, you're often aiming at the wrong target. You're uh, aiming at a proxy for demand instead of what actually causes demand. So people have both functional and emotional jobs. And that exists, by the way, in a complex business-to-business -business environment as well as in a, uh, a 
personal goods environment. There's always a functional and an emotional component to things. And you need to understand it at the level of individuals, not of their institutions, but uh, you know, as Mitt Romney once said in a different context, companies are people too. So uh, you know, get down to the level of those individual stakeholders, understand the functional and emotional things they're trying to accomplish, disaggregate that. Uh, and as you do, then you have a very specific uh, compass heading that's related to what actually causes demand, not just what, what correlates with demand. And you list five places to look for operational innovation, from the product or service you're offering, to how it's made, to how you deliver the product, to how you sell the product, to partnerships. So I know our time is limited, and I want to ask you to give examples from each of those. Uh, but but can you give an example or two from one or two of those areas that illustrate examples of how other companies have taken advantage of one or more areas of operational innovation? Sure. Let me let me give you two. So one of the most popular brands of potato chip in the UK is called Salt and Shake, and the amazing thing about it is that it is a plain potato chip with no flavoring. And people customize the flavor themselves because it's sold with the, these packets of salt or you know, other stuff. So, uh, you know, it, it involves the user and they enjoy that and they can customize things to their own taste. But, you know, operationally, it's super efficient. They don't have to sell in 50 different stock keeping units. They can sell basically one uh, and have people customize it at the very end of the process. It's what we call postponement. Uh, and it, it, it's a wonderful way of both delivering something that delights the customer and radically simplifying your supply chain. You can also look across uh, different elements of your value chain and think, what would radical uh, partnerships look like? So Whirlpool ships these very large, bulky washer, dryers, stuff like that. thing is, they're not very heavy. Yeah, most of it is air inside. And so their trucks end up being very full, but not very heavy. Meanwhile, the tile company Dow Tile uh, sells these very heavy, but not very bulky tiles. So they got together to share their shipments. So they uh, send a little bit of tiles, which are heavy, and uh, a large you know, volume-wise set of uh, washers and dryers, which are big. And that makes very efficient use of those trucks, which, by the way, are typically going to the same destination anyway. You know, those sorts of unorthodox partnerships uh, can save you a lot of money. Uh, in that case, it is invisible to the customer. And it, it's a great example of really thinking across the business. Redone our bathrooms recently and moved some tiles. Uh, I wish I had read the book before that happened. It would have saved my back a little bit of uh, pain and suffering. <laughs> Easier to move a dryer than a tile. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so roughly the second half of the book is a playbook of sorts. I know it's hard to pick favorites, uh, but what are a few that you think are, are most effective that listeners may be interested in hearing about? And well, we've got uh, a, a ton, as you say. There's actually yeah. 20 different plays that we have in there. Yep. Um, look, uh, take, for instance, uh, how people make the product. Build-A-Bear Workshop. It's also an example sort of a postponement, but it's also involving the user in the actual experience of, of building the product. 
you know, IKEA does this as well, right? It, it delivers an element of satisfaction and user involvement, and it makes a, a you know a ton of sense operationally. James Allen is a uh, online jeweler that doesn't actually own any jewels, uh, and so you know there is no inventory. Uh, it when somebody uh, wants a particular diamond and they they focus on on diamonds, then they ins- they buy the diamond, they inspect it for quality, and they ship it on. You know, Drizzly is a liquor delivery uh, service, which is very similar to that. The Mini, I think, is a great example, the Mini car, in that it's got this almost infinitely customizable body, and yet there's only two different chassis types, which is where the, the real uh, cost in a product is, uh, in an auto product is. So that, you know, there, there's a ton of examples in there about how people have done things which either delight a customer or, at the worst, are invisible to a customer. Uh, and yet save a lot of money in the process. Yeah, and one of the companies you write about is Atlassian, uh, which which we use some here at Three Pillar. They have uh, a wildly popular product management tool called Jira, in addition to a, a number of others. How did Atlassian grow to a $5 billion valuation without having a sales department? And- Right. And it's out in Australia. It's not in Silicon Valley. Is that right? right? I did not know that. Not in the center of the world. Well, so, you know, obviously it has a good product, but no sales department. What they did was they enlisted their users uh, and they cultivated these passionate fans who would tell other people about them. They gave them the, the tools to tell other people and to support other people and to become recognized as leaders in a community of Atlassian users. For that, you know, it's not really compensation. They get this highly credible um, representative, essentially, who can tell people about things, who can stand by them after the sale, and who costs next to nothing to uh, to run. Yeah. I've been traveling a little bit recently, and I have seen cost-evasion peering out from me in, uh, in, in airports. So great placement on that. Congratulations. Thanks. For folks that are listening and uh, and are interested in picking up a copy uh, that that may not be uh, traveling, where should they go? A- Amazon, I imagine their local uh, bookstore. Yes, it is certainly on uh, on Amazon. Uh, yeah, there, there's one of the the big uh, bookstore chains and airports is promoted in September. It will be promoted again in January, so we're excited about that. But uh, it's certainly available on Amazon. There's a bunch of resources at costovation.com, including a download of our first chapter. Uh, so I urge you to check it out. Okay, very nice. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. Great talking with you about costivation and how to do more with less. Thanks very much. My pleasure. The Innovation Engine Podcast is brought to you by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Head to www.3pillarglobal.com to learn more about our services. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Spotify, and we post extensive show notes for each episode on the Three Pillar website at threepillarglobal.com slash podcast. That's three with the number three. Last but not least, we're always striving to improve here on the Innovation Engine podcast, and we get asked often who listens to it. We can see from our analytics that a pretty healthy number of you do listen, but raw download numbers don't do much to help us learn who out there is listening, what your day-to-day jobs are like, and what kinds of topics or which specific guests you might like to hear from. So if you'd like to help make the Innovation Engine 
a little bit better, please take a few short minutes out of your day and shoot me a quick email with some of that information. Will.Sherlin at 3PillarGlobal.com is my email address. Also, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and message me there. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.